Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Gregory Rasputin was a famous counselor and faith healer who in the early part of the 20th century attached himself to the royal family, the Romanov family of the Russian Empire and its last Tsar, Tsar Nicholas. His uh, emotional and mental grip on the family was legendary and it wasn't for the better. In fact, many people in those final days of that dynasty resented Rasputin and his impact on the family because, among other things, he was a well-known, self-serving profligate. He regularly loved to uh, engage in what was known as mixed bathing in those days, had an eye for young ladies. His drunken and licentious lifestyle were widely documented, and his misrepresentation of the Bible through his mysticism was thought to be clouding the judgment of the royal family. And what little we have from his personal writings and letters, it's clear he embraced a perverted form of doctrine that taught that sin was in fact necessary in the life of Christians as a way of magnifying God's grace. He taught that the more you sin, the more you give God an opportunity to forgive and thus the more you draw attention to His glory. In fact, Rasputin has widely become recognized as one of the quintessential antinomians of the 20th century. An antinomian is someone who denies the need for any moral norm in the life of a Christian, any kind of moral law in the life of a Christian, who distorts the concept of grace to mean that a life of holiness is no longer important, no longer essential for the believer. The antinomian mantra has always been that God delights in all Christians exactly the same, therefore good works are unnecessary. That God doesn't see sin in your life as a believer, that to strive after holiness inevitably smacks of legalism, that the entire source of our ongoing peace and our ongoing assurance is solely the knowledge of what Christ did for us on the cross and not in the evidence of what we might see of it in our lifestyle. It is the mantra that moral laws are no longer binding on Christians and that we shouldn't speak of our spiritual life as a sense of duty or a spiritual progress, but simply a reception of God's grace. Rasputin, of course, was, wasn't the last advocate of that kind of sinful lifestyle. Their voices are active today all over Christianity. They write, they blog, they tweet, all speaking of the, of the lack of duty or the dismissal of discipline for which every Christian ought to be pursuing, as if somehow those things diminish the grace of God. Or at least those things reflect our inadequate love for Him. Of course, it's not a modern day phenomenon or a recent development. It existed from the various early days of the church. Jude 4 records this. 
It says certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these people came in to the church speaking of the grace of God, but were actually undermining it, Jude says, undermining the gospel, undermining the diligent pursuit of holiness within the lives of believers. Well, these are the very people that Paul targets in Romans chapter 6, our passage for this morning. And you'll notice in that chapter, the opening words, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's a rhetorical question, one whose answer is supposed to be obvious, but Paul states it anyway in verse 2, by no means, absolutely not. God forbid, as some versions put it. And if you're an attentive student to the book of Romans, you recognize that, that his question has already been brought up by Paul's opponents, and he quotes them, you remember back in chapter 3, verse 8, why, why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying? So this was a real problem, even in the early church as it is in our own day, people who either misrepresent the true gospel of, uh, or the true preachers of the gospel such as Paul, or who intentionally misrepresent the gospel themselves, a misunderstanding maybe would be a gracious way to say it, twisting to the destruction of many this idea of grace and forgiveness. People have always tended to read the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and to distort it to mean that the doctrine of sanctification, that is the pursuit of holiness, because we are forgiven that such a pursuit is therefore unimportant. It is, it is trivial to speak about. It is peripheral in what we ought to be focusing on. Or that because we had nothing to do with our justification, some have been tempted to say that we equally have nothing to do with our sanctification. It is the classic let go and let God approach to the Christian life. And of course, it isn't just some unknown people in the distant corner of Christianity who are saying this, because if we're honest, sometimes we have to deal with that conniving voice in our own hearts that wants us to believe that if we go on sinning, that God ultimately will not care that He ultimately won't do anything, that His grace is just going to cover it all, that it makes no difference to God how we live, how we respond, whether we pursue holiness. It's the battle in our own conscience with self-deception, with what we sometimes call rationalization, that leads to a kind of complacency in our Christian life, because after all, we celebrate the grace of God so much, we just imagine that when we do what we are tempted to do, when we give in to the lust of our flesh, the, the lust of our eyes, the pride of life, that ultimately God is going to forgive it anyway. And so we give in to 
the temptation to vent our anger, to indulge our desires, to, to follow our temptations, to pursue our idols, to throw off the restraints of our lips and our hearts and our minds, convincing ourselves that there's no need to take seriously God's warnings about sin. We'd never put it so brashly as the well-known French skeptic Francois Voltaire when he tried to defend his sinful lifestyle by saying, quote, God will forgive, that is his business, end quote. But sometimes that's what we do. We reduce God down to simply the servant of our sin, the one who accommodates our lusts. But the truth is, God is not the servant of your sin. In fact, neither are you. You're not the servant of your sin. This is Paul's whole point in Romans chapter 6. His aim is to teach us in this chapter, uh, chapter how our celebration, if you will, of the doctrine of justification, when rightly understood, actually leads to a diligent pursuit of a life of holiness. How forgiveness of sin doesn't lead you to greater indulgence of sin, but when understood in the doctrine of justification, because of what Christ has done, it leads you to a separation from sin. Now Paul demonstrates this by posing this rhetorical question at the beginning of the chapter and then answering it with a sequence of reasons or conclusions or deductions drawn from what he's been teaching us already in the book of Romans and particularly what he has been teaching us in Romans chapter 5 about our former life under the curse of Adam and our new life under the grace of Jesus Christ. And you remember this in chapter 5, Paul explaining how that death spread to all men because of Adam's sin. Adam, of course, born in this world without sin, but when he sinned, it brought a condemnation of death, one which he eventually would taste by physical death, but one which he immediately experienced by way of spiritual death. And Paul's point in Romans chapter 5 is that every one of us are born under that curse, Without ever having done anything, we are cursed with spiritual death because of Adam and because of his sin. And so we were condemned, if you will, in Adam. He brought the curse of death, physical death and spiritual death. And by his one act, he introduced death into the world so that since the time of Adam, we were all born under that curse, born spiritually dead. And Paul presents all humanity then either in a relationship to Adam and therefore dead or, as he says, in a relationship to Christ by which we can have spiritual life. Verse 18 probably summarizes it as best as any of them, the verses there, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so... One act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So now you're either still in Adam 
and still dead because of the condemnation of your sin, or you are in Christ and spiritually alive because of the effect of His sacrifice on the cross. That's the basic division of humanity. That's how Paul would present it to us. Two divisions, two realms, if you will, that are out there in the world. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And it's that language of of realm, if you will, that carries us into Romans chapter 6, and you begin to hear Paul speak in these kinds of categorical terms as he speaks about, for example, the kingdom or the reign. He uses that word basiluo or the word curio, the word for lordship or the word for reigning over something, just as well as the word for slavery. All of this to help us understand how the work of justification is fundamental to understanding how we are sanctified from sin. How the work of Christ not only grants us forgiveness, but also brings about practical holiness as well. And the truth is, we have moved, if we are in Christ, from the realm of death under Adam, and that sin that comes with it, to the realm of life under Christ and the righteousness that comes with it. That's the point. And you can listen to the language that Paul presents all of this to us as I, I just could read for you now from verse 1 through verse 18, giving us sort of the contours of the chapter. Paul, Paul says this. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So, You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey, either to sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God... 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. We can stop there. Obviously, we will get through all of those verses in due time. But this morning, we, we want to just sort of introduce everything that Paul is saying here in the, in the most helpful way we can by looking at just a couple of verses at the beginning of this chapter. You'll notice the chapter is really marked off by these two rhetorical questions. In verse 1, are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? And in verse 15, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And so the chapter is really dealing with this unified theme. The first half of it, though, focuses sort of on the negative side, the fact that we have been freed from bondage to sin. The second half of it focuses, if you will, more on the positive side, that we are to be continually dedicating ourselves to righteousness. And along the way, as you move through this chapter, Paul begins by speaking in indicatives statements of of, of fact about who we are in Christ, and he moves eventually to imperatives, that is, statements about how we are to respond, commands, if you will, of how we are to respond in light of the facts that he gives. Both of these are equally vital to understand if you're to have any hope this morning of winning your battle with sin. This isn't a chapter that is written simply to those exceptional Christians who are predisposed to a a kind of holy living that makes all of life easy for them. This isn't the description of a a life of just a, a fortunate few, but this is the description, a call to holiness for all of those who claim to be in Christ. It's a call to fruitfulness, it's a call to righteousness, and it's a call to the blessings that come with it. And yet it is missed, the truths of this are missed by so many people because, uh, we might say, of how tightly wound is all of the logic with which Paul unfolds the truths of these chapters. People sometimes get lost in all of the statements that he gives here. And so we want to take our time to move through them carefully. I think we could find a sequence of, of reasons here, seven in total from verses 1 just to verse 14, seven reasons we pursue righteousness based on the truths of the sacrifice of Christ. He tells us, for example, in verse 2, we won't live in sin because we died to sin. In verse 3, we died to sin because we've been baptized into Christ. And then we've been baptized into Christ, meaning we were baptized into His death. And then in verse 4, since we've been baptized into His death, we will also experience the resurrection with Him in new life. And since we died and are resurrected, he says in verse 6, we're no longer slaves to sin. And since in verse 10, death is final, resurrection, life is continual, we will no longer go back to a life of sin. And then in verses 11 through 14, since we cannot go back to a life of sin, 
we must understand ourselves then to be dead to sin, and we must understand ourselves to be living for God. Those are seven reasons, I believe, that Paul is unfolding for us here. As I said, each one of them sort of sequentially building on one another. And granted, it takes some amount of mental energy to follow and to comprehend what Paul's saying here. This is some of the most rhetorically tight passages of Scripture that you'll find anywhere. But by personal experience, in your own battle with your tongue and with your heart and with your life, you understand how vital it is for you to grip onto the truths of what Paul is telling us here so that we can live a life of victory over sin, a life that reflects the glory of God as we all desire. And so these seven reasons take us mostly through these indicatives of the chapter with just a few imperatives to the, uh, to the end of these first 14 verses, these seven uh, reasons, all preparing us for the remainder of the imperatives that come in the chapter. You could probably find easier ways to summarize the first 14 verses, more broadly perhaps, more uh, summarily, but but to make sure that we don't miss any of these logical steps. We'll pursue all seven in the course of the next couple of weeks, beginning with the first in verse 2. Paul's statement that we won't live in a life of sin because we died to sin. We won't live in sin because we died to sin. I mean, this is no question that this is the foundation of everything Paul has to say in this chapter about sanctification. Are we to continue in sin? By no means. Why? Because we died to sin. And how can we still live in it, as he says in verse 2, if we already died to it? Paul's responding to this rhetorical question with a, what is becoming commonplace for him now in Romans, this meginita, one of the strongest expressions that he could give of a, a sense of revulsion or, or detesting of some concept. It, it was unthinkable for him. It was unthinkable that a Christian would give his life or would live his life in a sinful way. You may think that sometimes in your heart that's allowable. You may conclude that sometimes it is justifiable because of your circumstances, because of your personal weaknesses, because of your personality. But for Paul, it was unthinkable because we died. That's a summary, really, of what he just taught in Romans chapter 5. We're very familiar with the language of death because it was constantly on Paul's pen as he moved through Romans chapter 5. Death, first and foremost, first and foremost was presented as the penalty for sin. It was the curse that resulted from Adam. And while we might have lived at one time unaware of it, we were just as condemned. Every one of us, all of us deserved it because of our sin. But for those of us who received Christ, what happened was 
when Christ died in our place, we recognized that the punishment He received was for our sin. The punishment, in other words, was justified in light of our sin. Death was necessary. And so when you receive Christ, you not only receive Him, but you accept the condemnation that He bore on your behalf. You accept, if you will, death. And by doing that, you're placed in Christ. You're counted as being with Christ on the cross. Or better yet, His righteous act is counted towards you. His sacrifice is counted towards you. And so, from a legal standpoint, when Christ died, you died. And it's, important, it's, it's very important that we understand this is what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about this legal transaction. He's talking about what legally occurred through the death of Christ. Through the death of Christ, it is as if you legally died. You accepted the legal condemnation, and God accepts the legal substitution of Christ on your behalf. But it's this legal idea that Paul has in mind when he says we died to sin. The one or one of the ways we can be sure of this is because he uses the same phrase to speak of Christ a little bit later. In fact, look down at verse 10. For the death that he died, he died how? To sin. The death that Christ died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. What does He mean by that? It's so important that you understand this. What does He mean when He says Christ died to sin? Well, obviously, He doesn't mean that at one point Christ was alive to sin. He's not suggesting that there was some change behaviorally in the life of Christ, so that he went from at one point in his life desiring sin, even pursuing sin, to suddenly not desiring sin and not pursuing sin. That's not the context of what dying to sin means, at least in this chapter. What did change for Jesus was his legal status. He went from being innocent to being what? To being guilty. In the sense that He bore our guilt for us, He took our condemnation for us, He suffered our punishment for us, and so this is how He died to sin. In grammatical terms, this is called a dative of reference. His death was in reference to, or it indicated that, or it gave testimony to sin. Sin was what caused it. Sin was the reason for it. That's the idea. He died in relationship to his association to our sin. And this death wasn't a constant thing. It wasn't something that he had to do daily. It wasn't a state in which he had to live in order to be righteous or holy. In fact, Paul says in verse 10, it was what? It was once for all. 
That statement's so familiar from the book of Hebrews, talking about the finality of the work of Christ. It was a one-time event. All of this is legal language related to Christ, not behavioral language. And so back in verse 2, the same is true of us. We died legally. We accepted the condemnation as justified. We agreed with it. Sin deserved uh, death. We accepted the penalty. We accepted the suffering of Christ as our substitute for that penalty. And as a part of our testimony to sin, as a part of our confession, if you will, of Christ, we confess our need for such a substitute as we confess how we deserve to die. We accept death in reference to sin and we give thanks for Jesus who substitutes for us. Now we make all those points. We drive home all of that because some have actually read this to mean that when we become dead to sin, we become dead in the sense that we no longer feel any desire for sin. And they They even use images like a dead corpse and suggest that a dead corpse cannot respond to stimuli. It can't feel, it can't see, it can't hear, it can't touch. And so what they say is that's the way that you and I are supposed to be. We're supposed to have no feeling and no desire for sin anymore. And this, in fact, has led to a lot of frustration for many Christians because they read verses like that and they hear interpretations like that and it doesn't match up to their personal experience. They personally experience, uh, or their personal experience is one where, unfortunately, they feel at times a lot of desire for sin. They feel a lot of temptation. And they wonder what's wrong with them in light of the way they've understood these verses. And they begin to think that while it may be true for other Christians... It's not true for them that they have been somehow shortchanged in the grace of God, that God has not given them the same freedom from sin that He's given to everyone else, the same freedom from the impulses to sin that He's given to everyone else. And so they feel deprived, they feel somehow cheated from the grace of God, and it just propels them further into a sort of self-pity which drives them even further into sin. All of that from a misunderstanding of this verse. That idea of deadness to sin is not the idea in this phrase. Otherwise, Paul would never have applied it to Christ. Because obviously, Christ never had those internal compulsions to sin. And in fact, if Paul believed that all Christians died to sin in the sense of losing any desire for it, He wouldn't need to come back later in the chapter and command them not to let sin reign over them or to present their bodies as instruments of sin. That would be unnecessary. But it's clear, especially from verses 12 and 13, that Paul considers sin an ongoing, ever-present threat to believers. It's an ongoing, ever-present battle that you will be in. And he wants them to understand that if you're a Christian, you have accepted the death penalty because of sin, and so, because of that, you have died. Unless, of course, you don't believe that your sin deserves death. 
in which case you don't really accept the sacrifice of Christ, in which case you're not a Christian to begin with. And so genuine belief in the sacrifice of Christ is totally incongruent with a life of sin. Genuine belief in the atoning work of Christ is completely incongruent with the profession of faith about a life of sin. Because a profession of faith in Christ is a profession of faith in your deserving to die. To live on a life of sin contradicts with your life what you say you believe in your heart about sin and about death and about the death of Christ. The issue then is not whether you can at times live in a way that might be inconsistent with your profession of faith. It's whether or not you could ever accept as normative in your life a life of sin when you profess to believe that Jesus died for your sins. In other words, Paul's not saying that sin died in you. He's saying you died to sin. Or to put it in the language of the rest of the chapter, the issue is not that sin remains. The issue is that it doesn't reign. It no longer reigns. If you spend all of your life having slept on a cold, hard floor, and then you were finally given the right and the privilege to climb up into the bed and sleep in the warmth and comfort of its sheets, even if you happen to roll out of the bed onto the floor one night. You wouldn't just stay there simply because you happened to roll back into your old position. You would get up and put yourself back into the bed. You would still understand that the cold, hard floor is no place to be, right? And so it is with our, our life in Christ. Although we may roll back from time to time into some sin, we don't just stay there. We pick ourselves up and we go back to a pattern of righteousness because we died to that old life. We died to it. And so that, that's Paul's fundamental reason why we pursue righteousness. We won't live in sin because we died to sin. But secondly, in building on that idea, out of our death to sin, he wants us to understand, we died to sin because, as he says in verse 3, we've been baptized into Christ. We died to sin because we've been baptized into Christ. As he says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Here he he talks about how our legal standing with Christ in his death was obtained, if you will. It It was obtained by being baptized into Christ. Now again, there's a lot of confusion about this verse because a lot of people read this and they immediately identify that word baptism and they think that what Paul's talking about is some event of baptism, and they fail to recognize that Paul uses this word baptized to speak metaphorically, not experientially in time for us, 
For example, over in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, in one spirit, or, or we might even translate that by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And he's not talking about water baptism there unless somehow it was the Holy Spirit who magically appeared instead of your pastor and dunked you under the water. He's not talking about that event that took place in, uh, in the visible realm. This is the metaphorical usage. The agency is the Spirit. The sphere is the body of Christ, the church. And when we believe, Paul says... The Spirit immerses us into the church, or as he goes on to explain in the rest of that chapter, he places us among the members of the body as he so chooses with gifts that he chooses. It's the Spirit who does that, metaphorically identifying us and placing us in the church. A little earlier, Paul had used this same metaphor referring to Israel and their new identity under Moses. He says in in 1 Corinthians 10, 2, that the children of Israel were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, through God's work of deliverance, they went from being people oppressed in Egypt to being people protected under God. They were, they were now identified, if you will, as God's own people. And maybe most significantly, Paul uses this metaphor in Galatians 3.27 to also speak about being baptized into Christ. He says there, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And he uses that verse as an explanation of the previous verse about how we have new identity as sons of God through faith. This new identity by faith, he says, is like a baptism for us, a baptism into Christ. And the common characteristic of all those is that every time Paul uses baptism in this metaphorical way, he adds some qualifying statement. We were baptized into something. When he uses the word baptized by itself without any kind of qualifier, Paul refers to water baptism, to our experience of baptism. But when he adds the qualifier, he's... He's not talking about water baptism. He's using the word metaphorically. In fact, to see this as a reference to our personal experience of water baptism creates big problems. Because Paul's main point here is that it's through this baptism that we gain our legal status as participating with Christ in His death. That's the whole point. He says there in chapter 6, do you not know that we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? It's by this baptism that we enter into this legal status. Or another way to say this, Paul connects baptism with the atoning work of Christ on the cross. So to say that our experience of water baptism is what Paul's talking about, is to say that we participate in the atoning work of Christ because of some ritual of baptism. It would, in other words, be undoing everything that Paul has spent three chapters trying to build, that we are saved on the basis of faith alone, apart from any work 
or deed that we could do. And so people, many people, by the way, who want to see this as a a reference to the experience of water baptism, spend a lot of time trying to explain how this baptism is somehow effective and powerful and meaningful in connecting us to Christ, but it's not atoning. They can't escape the fact that what Paul says about this is that it is the way in which we enter into Christ's death. Paul wouldn't likely go from all these chapters arguing against works to muddy the waters now by tying some participation in the atoning work of Christ with some experience of water baptism. It's not what he's talking about here. This is just another one of those metaphorical usages. Paul is speaking about our identification with Christ, our profession of faith, we might say. It is by that, it is by us recognizing Christ and, and if you will, joining our hearts and minds to Him, that we are legally identified with Him in His death. And our penalty is applied to His account and His righteousness to ours. Now, all that, all that is indeed symbolized in baptism. When we go and we take someone and we stand them in front of you and they give a, a word of personal testimony about how they came to know Christ individually, we take them and put them under the water as a, as a symbol of an old life that has passed away. We bring them out of the water as a symbol of the new life that has come. It is a powerful symbol, just like a ring is a powerful symbol of, of a, a commitment that we make to someone in marriage. It's like a rainbow is a powerful symbol about how God will no longer flood the earth uh, with water as a, as a ma- means of, of judgment and destruction. But we don't confuse the symbol with the act. What is symbolized there was accomplished by Christ. What is symbolized there was given to us as a gift by faith. And we receive it not by doing something. It isn't by being baptized that you become a part of the family of God. It isn't by being baptized that you are bound for heaven. It isn't by a ritual that you went through either as a child or as a teenager or later on in life It isn't by any of those things that you should have any level of assurance that God is going to receive you into heaven. The only way you'll ever be received into heaven, the scripture says, is if you identify yourself with the penalty of Christ. That is to say, when he was on the cross, you readily confess that you are the one who should have been there. That you're the one who has rebelled against God. You're the one who has violated His commandments. You're the one who deserves His wrath. You're the one who ought to be sent to hell. That you identify with Him in that. By doing that, you you are baptized into Christ. Or as Paul says even here, you're baptized into His death in the sense that you are identified with Him. The Scripture says by that act of faith, by that, that expression, we might say, of faith, God credits to you all the righteousness of Christ and all of your sin is credited to Him. 
and His death becomes yours. And you are eternally and irrevocably saved. That's how salvation comes. It's not an act of baptism. It's not any other act that you do. It's not some ritual you perform. It's not some deed that you pursue. It's not some accumulation of works over your lifetime. It's not cleaning up your life and putting it together and presenting it to God. It is this legal transaction whereby you go from being a condemned sinner to being a welcome child of God. But you understand when doing that, you understand when doing that, you are taking up a cross. You understand when doing that, that you are losing your life. You identify with His death. But Jesus says if you lose your life, you'll find it. He says if you take up your cross and follow Him, you'll be His disciple. This is why sin doesn't make sense in the life of a believer. It doesn't make sense to say, well, my life of sin is deserving of death and destruction and I accept that penalty for what, it's, what it is and I identify with that death on, cro- on the cross of Christ. I receive that penalty for myself, but I'm going to go on living in a sinful life anyway. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense if you roll out of the bed onto the floor that you just lay there. It doesn't make sense that if you made some profession of faith in Jesus Christ that after maybe a couple of weeks or months or maybe just a few years of zeal that you eventually go back to the same sinful lifestyle that you always knew. You know what that is? That's evidence. That's evidence. It's evidence that sin still reigns. It's evidence that you don't understand the work of Christ. It's evidence that you are not His. It's evidence that the call of the gospel is still on your life, a call to repent, a call to believe, a call to make yourself His. If you're in Christ, you died. You died to sin and you live to God. Well, there's much more that comes to us in these verses and we'll get to it in the coming weeks as we seek to understand from the foundation up exactly how God would have us pursue a life of righteousness. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. And as we pray and as we sing in just a moment, if you're here this morning, we don't have an altar call, but there's an invitation. And the invitation is this. God has brought you here, maybe visiting family on vacation. Maybe you just come at the invitation of friends or whatever. God has brought you here so that you can hear this message that you stand condemned before Him. And that if you die and stand before God that way, you will suffer eternally the condemnation of your sins, eternal death in hell. But He's provided a way of salvation. A way in which all that penalty can can be born for you by Christ. All you need to do is accept it. All you need to do is profess it. All you need to do is identify with that Savior. Identify with that penalty. Identify with that death. 
and by faith give your life to God. You do that, the scripture says, not only will you live for eternally, eternity, but you'll have life. You'll have it more abundantly, even here. Father, we're grateful to you for these truths, thankful for the work of Christ, the one who brought us the truth of our own condemnation, the one who not only showed it to us, but who graciously took the place for us. Lord, help us to understand, to make again, if you will, the profession of faith that we in every way because of our sin deserve death. And so we are crucified with Christ. And it's no longer us who live. But Christ lives through us. Or we want to have that understanding in the daily choices, the daily steps that we take. Our understanding that we have died to sin and we live to God. Help us, Lord. Sanctify us. Even by your word today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.